This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. While I was growing up, I saw really beautiful hillsides in the Himalayas where we used to go every summer, very rapidly change into like just giant garbage dumps, you know, and it's for me that that bothered me quite a lot. And I don't really know what the solution to that is. And all of these things are kind of building up in the same direction that we will understand the living world better and better. And we will also understand how to apply it for what we need. But I also think in, in many other fields, people are beginning to realize that uh, learning from the living world might be very useful. And this ranges from you know material science, construction, architecture, to even computational algorithms that learn, that mimic biological networks to teach things how to discriminate between, you know, different subgroups. So there's a lot of kind of machine learning and neural networks are actually they're mimicking structures that are already present in biology and how living organisms learn. So I think the, the awareness of what is out there in the natural world is affecting all people. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Passion People Podcast. The Passion People Podcast chronicles stories of people who follow their passion and make it manifest in a tangible way. So you can get inspired and also get one step closer to whatever it is that you're passionate about. Before we get into today's episode, I'd just like to take an opportunity to wish everyone a very happy World Radio Day, which is February 13th. And depending on which part of the world that you're listening to, it could already be February 13th. So, happy World Radio Day. World Radio Day is celebrated to celebrate radio as a way of educating people, providing information and providing freedom of expression across cultures. And I think that's what we're doing with podcasting, which is a medium under the audio umbrella. Another big announcement before we get on with today's episode is that I am a part of a panel discussion for uh, the radio festival that's happening in Delhi on the 13th and 14th of February in again tomorrow in the afternoon 2020. And I'm really excited to be there. So moving on to today's episode, we are in conversation with Simran, who's studying microbiology. On this episode, we talk about how climate change motivated Simran to take up microbiology because she looked at microbes as one of the things that could solve the current problems that are facing humanity, whether like the climate crisis or the plastic crisis that, you know, that we're struggling with so much. We discuss the coronavirus, we discuss model organisms, and we discuss a lot of technical things that are extremely in-depth and sciencey, as I would say, but if you are someone who loves getting into details and so and you are someone who you know wants to know what drives a particular individual to do something like this you should definitely listen to this episode i just like to place on record my thanks and appreciation to hindenburg which is a fantastic audio editing software who has supported us for this entire year with a free subscription of hindenburg journalist pro Let's dive right into the episode. Simran, thank you so much for taking time uh, to be on the Passion People podcast. Super duper exciting to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad we finally found time. 
I I wanted to get your take on uh, what's happening in the world currently with the uh, with the coronavirus and why it's spreading. What's a virus? Why is it such like a big enigma? And what's happening with the coronavirus? So let's say so a virus is like a really 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 tiny particle that is kind of at the edge of the living and the non-living because it cannot really replicate. So like you know you would define life perhaps at like in textbooks it's quite often defined as that which replicates itself, right? So a virus cannot really replicate itself outside a host. So it's a complete parasite. it needs something else to to grow and to divide and so on and the other thing is it's a very very minimalist kind of form of life the only thing it really has is some nucleic acids or some rna or dna the coronavirus for example is an rna virus so it has a little piece of what is called ribonucleic acid and then it has a bunch of proteins around it and sometimes these viruses also have some lipids around them the ones that infect like humans or other mammalian cells have these lipid layers viruses infect everything by the way like there's even viruses that attack bacteria the fact that you can have vi- viruses infecting bacteria to have a new type of antibacterial things as well so yeah the coronavirus has jumped from you know other animals to us from bats and so yeah i don't know i'm let's see what happens so right now there's no known uh, vaccine or any preventive drug or any drug once you got infected with the coronavirus which is why it's so scary and since it's transmitted through from people to people through aerosols or things it's it can spread quite fast and yeah that that's why everyone's panicking a bit but let's hope ideally someone would discover a drug for it very quickly okay i've i've always felt that uh, viruses are more more mysterious than the other microorganisms what sets them apart i personally think you could die of of bacteria or fungi or many other things but i suppose viruses can be spread quite rapidly some of them can kill you quite fast and i think the really big thing is that in terms of how many antiviral um therapies we have we have very few very hard to kill a virus and once it's inside your body you know on the surface you can sterilize like operation theaters other things you can sterilize pieces of equipment more easily but once it's in you it's very hard to kill it and part of the reason is that the viral like it it in, exists inside your cells so when a virus has infected you it means that it's not just so bacteria are, are most bacteria are somewhere you know either on the surface of your body or within your tissues in between some cells but viruses are like always intracellular so they've gone through the membrane of your cell and gone inside and either they've integrated their uh, genome or their piece of dna into your dna so it's very hard to kind of kill them at this point they're very much part of your body so a virus is basically just a piece of dna surrounded by some proteins or as i say sometimes lipids and what it does is that when it attacks a host so it doesn't have you know it can't generate energy on its own it can't do anything on its own it ha- it needs a host cell so it goes into the host cell and then using this piece of dna it uses the host's machinery so everything that the cell that's being attacked uses to build proteins to build more dna to get energy so it hijacks all of that machinery and just makes more of itself 
rather than letting the horse itself kind of do its own job good to know the, this background of uh, of what's happening but you know as we get on uh, get back to regular programming with uh, the passion people podcast can you can you do like a quick introduction of yourself and uh, what you do and what your passion is so hi i'm simran i'm a phd student uh, and i'm studying sorry don't uh, don't get conscious that uh, we're recording or whatever right so just uh, you you can just talk like you know like you're introducing yourself to me like so hey simran what do you do hi i'm simran i'm a phd student and i study east and i try to understand what's happening at the subcell level at the biochemical level inside each yeast cell um so we study yeast for two main reasons first is that we can use it for quite a lot of different quite a lot of different things we can use it as you all know to make bread and beer and all the other types of alcohol but these days we're also using it to make a host of a variety of other uh, compounds and the second reason is that we use it as model organism uh, to study human metabolism so at the subcellular level at the level of the reactions that happen inside our body small molecules such as glucose or um all the other things that we eat the inside of a yeast cell is quite similar to the inside of a human cell or a mouse cell or a bat cell and so on okay so it's true it's true what they say that you know deep down inside we're all the same yeah i mean quite a lot of uh, what happens inside our cells and bacterial cells and yeast cells um, yeah is is quite similar so there's quite a lot of in biology we say that it's uh, the level of that our genomes are quite conserved so we measure genetic distance between two species by how conserved the sequence the dna sequence inside our um, cells is so how similar it is and yeah okay so can you break break this down for us genome uh, dna sequence uh, what's what's the meaning of closeness and not close inside each of our cells there are some instructions that are passed on from generation to generation um from our parents and our grandparents and so on and these are written down let's say in a sequence of letters and there's four letters in in this there's four letters in this alphabet um and this these letters write up what the the deoxyribonucleic acids that's the technical term and the sequence of these letters forms our genome so the entire sequence of these letters present in our body is our genome now there's different there's short bits of the genome which we call genes um that are passed on again with with uh, with all the sequences um and these genes are the instructions to make one specific very tiny part of our cells and that those parts when built up basically make everything that's inside and and you also mentioned about the uh, similarity or the difference between yeah. the genes so basically the sequence of these genes um between two individuals or you know two species or two different bacteria or between a bacteria and a human will tell you um how different uh, or how let's say at what point in evolution or how far they are from each other in the tree of life um so let's say my genome if you if you took some of my cells um and 
extracted some DNA and then sequenced that DNA and you did the same for my brother, you would find that we have, you know, 99.9999 something percent of our genes are the same. Uh, I don't know exactly how much it would be, but it would be something like 97, 99%. And then if you went further away from me in my family tree or in the same kind of area where I live, uh, where I've, where my family is from, you would find that we're our genomes are, are are close together compared to if you took somebody from the other side of the planet and sequenced their genome and then compared it to mine, um, the match would be uh, a bit less. And similarly, you could do this for any two species on the planet, and that would tell you how different they are at the genetic level. And this is a reflection of how far how long ago they had their last common ancestor. So at some point, we assume that all of life had one common ancestor. It's called Luca, the last universal common ancestor. And then, you know, it, it was something like a bacterium. And then the children of this bacterium kind of slowly, slowly, slowly started becoming different from each other. And that's where the tree of life started from. And now we have humans and, you know, tigers and, and yeah things that grow in hydrothermal vents and they're all quite they've diverged from each other genetically and physiologically and behaviorally so yeah. wow but i think that could be a little bit more creative in uh, coming up with the name <laughs> yeah maybe what would you call it i, I don't know that you just caught me off guard there <laughs> <laughs> I don't so, have a better name, but perhaps that's because we always called it Luca in our textbook. I've read somewhere that, uh, you know, if you see someone and you're attracted to them, it means that uh, you both have like different genetic profiles and that's why you're attracted to each other because together you have a more diverse genetic makeup. So your offspring will be better. Is that is that a thing? Yeah, I mean, um, let's say biologically speaking, uh, it would make sense to mate with somebody of a very different genetic ba- uh, back- background or who has a very different genetic sequence because the likelihood that the offspring will have kind of lots of healthy genes is much higher. So it would make sense on a statistical or, or you know, if you say what would confer fitness to the offspring, it should make sense. Now, in the real world, there's lots of other factors, of course, that play a role if you can't understand what the other person's saying and not <laughs> kind of, uh, yeah, where you would go from that. So I think in the real world, all these people do some experiments or they find some correlations, but it's very, very hard to prove that that's exactly what's going on. Yes, there are studies who've you know, shown that yeah, different, you're more attracted to people with different genetic background, you might be more attracted people of a different whose gut microbiota so all the bacteria that live inside our gut are very different from us you would be you would find that kind of person attractive but it's very hard to really scientifically kind of say this is what's happening yeah i don't think there's conclusive proof that this is what's going on but right. so this is on the uh, attraction side right and you said for uh, fitness of the offspring but uh, is is there uh, conclusive evidence that says that there's a lot of people who don't a lot of communities that don't uh, encourage marriages between the family and they say that you know that the offspring would not be fine and stuff so is there something more concrete there there is a very significant risk when 
uh, when people inbreed. That is true. You see in communities which don't marry outside the community that they have much higher than average, than global average rates of genetically inherited diseases. Um, so this is definitely. Okay. So given, given this background, I guess it's really surprising that uh, a lot of people are still, uh, at, at least in India, they're still stuck with, you know, the caste or the religion where science is telling them to do the complete opposite. Yeah, I mean, as I said, like in the real world, all our choices are kind of confounded by many other factors that, that drive us. And uh, from a biological point of view, this may not be the best idea. But in India specifically, there's actually a recent paper um, that that came out on this. And what they did was they sequenced the genomes of people living in the same place from different communities, from different socioeconomic uh, backgrounds, who have been living in the geographically the same region for thousands and thousands of years. And what they found is that within the same community, within the same kind of class, I don't know, there's different levels of classification in India. So within the same religious, socioeconomic group, uh, people have been kind of mating within it. And you could have someone living in the exact same geographical region from a richer or a poorer um, class or from different re- and from different religion. And the genetic distance between these two groups is as big as the genetic distance between Northern Europeans and Southern Europeans. And this is really, really scary because it's telling you that, you know, there have been thousands and thousands of people living in the same place for thousands of years and they have never got a chance to kind of kind of marry or, you know, be with somebody from a different uh, socioeconomic background. And this is on average, like, it's, it's a bad thing because it is kind of like inbreeding. Um, these groups may be bigger on average than what we usually consider inbred. So it may not be your cousin or something, but it may be a much bigger group, which is not mixed with another group living in the exact same spot. Whenever I was growing up, I never really considered science or I never really considered biology as, as a subject that, that I'm going to study. So I'm curious to know, uh, forget my uh, biology, so what, what pushed you towards uh, what you do currently, which is microbiology and that too for like one organism? Yeah, so for me, microbiology, I was always very fascinated because um, I don't really remember when was it the first time that I found out all this, all this bacteria. For me, the, the kind of different things that microbes can do. So they, there's microbes or let's say bacteria, uh, archaea, all these very kind of single cellular organisms everywhere on this planet. You can dig down thousands of, you know, like thousand meters into the earth and you would still find them. They live inside rock, they live in hydrothermal vents. So what they can do at the metabolic level, the you know, what they can, it, it's just like a whole different universe. So all the like humans, all the other animals, we need all these things we need to eat from the outside and then we can do certain types of things. But bacteria and microbes, they can do a lot more than what we do. They, they're quite you know, special in terms of they can use, you know, they can live in mines full of mercury. They can live in surroundings full of arsenic or at, you know, 120 degrees. I always found that very fascinating. And for me, there was another also quite, uh, inspiring or motivating factor was that I read 
at some point when I was in high school about bioremediation, that about these microbes could be used to clean clean up the environment, to clean up toxins uh, from the environment or oil spills or, you know, let's say plastic. We haven't solved most of those problems yet, but the fact that these microbes can take something that's toxic to most of the rest of life and convert it into something that other living organisms can use, for me, that was like, you know, that's what I should study. Uh, and I, I had hoped that someday I would um, go on and learn to use these microbes um, to kind of clean up. Mainly for me, it was more plastic waste because while I was growing up, I saw really beautiful hillsides in the Himalayas where we used to go every summer, very rapidly change into like just giant garbage dumps, you know, and it's for me that that bothered me quite a lot. And I don't really know what the solution to that is. I don't think anybody in the world right now has a definitive solution to how to get rid of all these different types of plastics that we create, that we're creating more and more of every day. It's not like, you know, the Western world or the more advanced countries have a solution to this. You don't see it on the street or they man- manage the waste better, but they still don't recycle it. It's still there somewhere. It might be hidden from sight, but the problem still kind of exists, you know. That's my overall, I guess, long-term ambition that someday we'll come to a point where we can collaborate with all the different, you know, really gifted microbes on this planet and use them to solve um, all of our problems and that we've created, basically. Right. And where are we in terms of the progress for uh, finding these microbes that could possibly break down plastic and what makes plastic such a such a big problem in the sense that why, why doesn't it go away like everything else? So for plastic specifically, the big problem, so the surprising thing is that it's made mostly of carbon, right? And even a non-biologist, even a layperson, would probably know that everything on Earth is a carbon-based life form. So we're very good, all of life on Earth is very good at converting carbon from one form to another. Everything that we eat has carbon in it, everything around us, like, fix carbon dioxide. We've got solutions for doing quite a lot of things with carbon. Unfortunately, we've created a type of carbon or let's say a, a specific structure with carbon that's very, very difficult to break down. So plastic is a chain, like the very basic type of plastic is a chain of carbon atoms with double bonds between them that's very, very, very long. And these double bonds in such a chain is really stable and these double bonds at the chemical level are quite difficult uh, for living things to attack when they're in such a long chain that they're very stable. But luckily, since we've been kind of dumping plastic all over the world in the oceans and the soil, there are bacteria that have used, that have learned to even eat up these, to break down these chains and use this carbon to make something else. So you could, you know, theoretically, you could break down this carbon and use it to make glucose. And everything else, once you have glucose, you can make whatever other metabolite or natural product um, you would like to make. So there are bacteria that have been shown to have um, activity in breaking down plastic. However, this is it's, it's something that isn't really well studied. So people have reported a few species that can do this. Uh, there's a few fungi and bacteria that can act uh, together or, you know, on their own. And they've shown that in certain soil samples, they see that the plastic is being broken down, but they don't really know what is really doing this. And yeah, there's even, I think, the be- the most 
inspiring example is the electron micrograph. This is a very high resolution, like you know, sub microscopic picture of a film of plastic. I think it's polyethylene covered by a bacterium that's using it as its sole source of carbon. So it's not getting any sugar, nothing from anywhere else except this sheet of polyethylene. And it's growing off of it and it slowly colonizes it over like 16 days or something. So for me, that's very inspiring. It means that there is, biology has found some sort of solution to attack these very resistant carbon-carbon chains and to use them to make all the other things that life is more compatible with. Got it. You you said uh, you know bacteria has now learned to break down this carbon, right? But humans have evolved over like millions of years. Is is that evolution process much faster for these guys? So yes, evolution definitely acts faster on bacteria, and that's because they're smaller and they uh, have children much quicker. So every twenty minutes, the most common bacterium called E. coli has a new generation. So if you're growing it in a flask in the lab. Every 20 minutes, the, the kind of number of cells in your flask is going to double. This means that if there's an external pressure that's acting as, um, that's forcing natural selection to act on this population, it can act much quicker. That answers my question. What are you specifically working on with yeast? Are you doing the kind of work that you thought you would be doing when you made this decision? Um, well, I would say I'm... I'm in the same kind of field. So what I'm doing now is very much basic science. We try to understand how chemical reactions inside a single yeast cell are, what all is going on, how do, how do they change. So it seems like, you know, yeast is something or bacteria is something that we should have understood. We obviously understand very well by now, but actually there's still quite a lot to learn just at the basic level. So inside every cell, the network of reactions that's happening so let's say i eat glucose then it will get you know converted into something else that gives me energy so it needs to get converted into atp which is the main like energy currency of a cell there's many 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 interconnected chains and cycles of, of these reactions of these chemical reactions happening inside a cell and if you put them all together it looks like the underground maps of all the big cities of the world combined together so it's a very complex problem and what we try to do specifically, the group that I'm working in for my PhD, we try to study the entire system at, at a go. So we try to study it at the system level. Traditionally, molecular biology or biochemistry tries to study uh, each reaction at a time. So you try to say, okay, this is a protein. It catalyzes um, a reaction that converts compound A to compound B. And that's in my PhD, I'm trying to grow yeast cells under different conditions, and then I try to see how this network responds uh, to the perturbation that I've caused. Got it. Does that also mean that uh, you're, you're you're doing some kind of genetic modification for the yeast to get get it to do stuff that you want, but it typically wouldn't do? Yeah. So what I'm studying right now is just like is again it's basic biology. So we have uh, genetically modified, you can say, mutant collections of yeast, and I try to use them to understand what each mutant does or so we've either deleted or altered a specific sequence or a specific gene and then we can try to study what this does but um, the applied version of this would be that you try to let's say i want to make yeast make red color and this red pigment i know that some flower growing somewhere makes so what i could do is i could try to put the proteins or the pathway 
which is a series of reactions catalyzed by all these proteins. Uh, I can kind of sequence it in this flower, and then I can put the sequence inside the yeast cell, and then I can tweak it a little bit to make this red color. And you can do this um, also now people do this for lipids. They can do it for, you know, um, different sugars. They can make fragrances like this. And a lot of what goes into your shampoos and your perfumes and so on um, is not actually extracted. Nobody goes to the rainforest, you know, extracts all these flowers and puts it in. It's quite often coming from a massive tank of yeast where uh, the strain that's inside this tank that's growing has been genetically engineered to produce that particular um, fragrance compound or flavor compound. And this compound is 100% natural. It's not a synthetic compound, even though you're making it in a factory. At the atomic level, at the chemical level, it's exactly the same as what you would get if you plucked a flower, or plucked a branch of a tree or whatever it is that you're trying to mimic and, and, and extracted it. So it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's created by biology with the same instructions that the original plant or um, whatever the gene comes from made it. I understand. So does that mean that we can use these uh, yeast molecules to, you know, uh, act as a substitute for, uh, you know, all of a lot of industries that are heavily dependent on maybe endangered species of plants or stuff like that? Yeah, so right now, what I find really exciting is that there's kind of a completely, um, so the biotech industry has existed for quite a long time. Mostly, if you say biotech, people think of pharmaceutical companies or drugs and things like that. But in the last decade or so, there's quite a lot of other types of biotech. So people producing um, things to sell, you know, like you're trying to replace chemicals and replace compounds that usually come either from chemical synthesis. So this is just putting lots of, you know, just chemistry, like adding chemicals to each other and produce synthesizing something that's similar to what you what you want to extract from the environment, or you go to a rainforest or some other plantation and, and grow a lot of a certain plant that you want more of, and then you extract it. So there's quite a lot of people trying to um, trying to kind of disrupt all these sectors with things that are produced in cells uh, in in breweries, basically. Yeah, I think there's quite a lot going on. I know that there's there's three companies in the world that have made uh, spider silk in yeast. So they took the genes from a spider, uh, cloned them or copied them, let's say, into a yeast cell and then engineered the yeast cell a little bit more. And now they have massive tanks, which has a lot of yeast um, growing in it. And it's producing the same protein that the spider produces, which then um, is basically the spider silk protein. Um, so there's that, there's, um, I saw a company trying to produce the constituents of palm oil uh, in yeast, so they were looking for a research and development um, team to able to, you know, study how the palm oil, the, uh, how palm, the plant produces palm oil, and then kind of put the same reactions in yeast so that we don't have to cut down half the rainforest and grow lots of palm trees on it. It's very exciting, there's a lot of different things, people are trying to produce pigments, there's a fashion designer that's created um, like a range of textiles which are dyed with bacterial pigments. So she basically dips them in a tank full of bacteria which produce pigments. So bacteria can make the entire rainbow of pigments, treat these compounds into the outside of their body sometimes, and um, that can stain whatever fabric you have. Uh, so you can make whatever color you want in, in principle. 
So she dips them into these bacterial tanks and the bacteria grow on them, they secrete the pigment and they stay in the fabric. And then she basically gets rid of the bacteria and what you have is a very naturally, organically colored piece of cloth. And quite often they have very nice formations on this cloth as well because it's wherever the bacteria was growing, it secreted the pigment. So it looks like a very kind of futuristic, you know, organic dyeing process. Got it. It seems like we can use these microorganisms for like a lot of problems that are being faced by humanity today. So to that extent, it looks like you're headed in the right direction in terms of saving the rainforest or saving the mountainside from from plastic. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, definitely the hope. Uh, there's always like practical problems. You're in the real world, even if you have a solution, even if you can produce something that is otherwise coming from an endangered species or, in, or a protected area, you have to compete with the market. So you have to make it cheaper than it is otherwise, you know. So there's a lot of other problems that come in. But I think I find it quite exciting to at least work in an area where you could have a solution, you know. You, it's not the only way is not to destroy a habitat. You have another option. So whenever it becomes economically more viable to produce it in a big tank, I think we're on the right way. The, the whole world is on, on a good path. I like to think uh, of the future as something that could be much better than we imagine. It doesn't have to be, you know, the end of life as we know it, the end of the world or something. There are a lot of people working on very creative solutions, quite a lot of them based on what already exists in nature. So you try to learn from nature because over millions and billions of years it's evolved to come up with solutions that are compatible, that are not wasteful, and they're not kind of polluting whatever is around it. And I think one of the key concepts in this um, area is that life or nature produces solutions that are that are like cyclical. So you have something that's producing, you know, A produces B, B produces C, and then eventually the cycle has to close and come back to A. And a lot of what humans do is a linear linear path. So you end up with quite a lot of the end product. And if there's no way of converting that back into what you started from, it's quite obvious that at some point you will run out of oil, you will, uh, you know, have too much CO2 in the atmosphere, you know, have too much plastic everywhere because you need something to convert it back into what was there before. Right. And I guess all the efforts that are going into uh, fighting climate change or reducing plastic is kind of closing those loops that were opened over thousands of years that we pursued this development without having a holistic perspective, right? Yeah, so I think like the big, it's mostly most of the massive changes that are reported in the global climate or other, or the you know pollution, etc. is since the Industrial uh, Revolution. And this is not thousands of years, but only a few hundred. But yeah, there's definitely, I think in this time and age, people are quite conscious about all these things. It's, you know, there's protests every weekend, um, and, and so on. And, and that's great because it creates much more awareness. And that means that all of this research basically needs to get to, to find these solutions, need to get funded from somewhere. And because of the increased awareness, funding bodies are much more likely to pay people to work on these solutions and to find these solutions. And quite a lot of them already exist. But there's still like, who knows what we might be able to make, you know, there might be buildings which are grown out of um, 
using biological systems, not necessarily brick and mortar. So I like to think of, of the future as something that's going to be better than what we imagine or what we hear in the news, because I think there's quite a lot that's out there that we can we can start working on and start using to live healthier lives and also that are much more in harmony with the natural world around us. Till now, I've always thought of the future as uh, a time where we'll be engulfed with more and more technology. But after, after talking to you, I, I, I'm now open to the idea that some of the technology could be other living creatures that, that are helping us solve some of these problems that are, or that are helping us make our life easier. I'm glad that I, I can convince you of that or at least make you think about it. And technology doesn't necessarily have to be all steel and glass and, and you know, concrete. It's, it's just a technology. I mean, the way I see it is just science that's applied to our daily lives or in a way that, you know, changes them in some way or makes things easier for us to do. But this doesn't have to be some wasteful, destructive process. It could be a very organic way of, um, yeah, it's just about how much we understand. I think nature has had time over, over so long to find solutions to everything, you know. We need food. Most of our food still comes from plants. We don't make it in, you know, laboratory. You know, and you you have shelter. You have okay. This let's cut this part out. No, this is you're you're building up to a nice conclusion. So please continue. Okay. So yeah, what I was saying is like most of what we need, you know, nature does provide already, and most of what the basic needs are are, are quite are quite same. We need food. We need shelter, and these days, we need quite a lot of things to entertain us and keep us busy. But there's no reason that none of all those things can't come from something that already exists in nature. Like, you know, if I want to wear shoes which are super well cushioned or something, there, there has to be some organism out there that's created a material that's suitable for that. Um, if I want to, you know, drink some beverage, there's, most of our beverages anyway come from some plant. So we're not that kind of. Uh, separated from the real, from the natural world, we actually depend on it very, very heavily. So I think the more we accept that, that we may not have, we may not be able to sit in an office or a lab and think of a really good solution to something. It might be easier to just go out there and, and look for some some animal or some plant or something that has already solved that problem. We might be able to use things which are much more kind of eco friendly and 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 don't have to destroy the world. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more on that. So for people who are considering a career path, doing what you do, what what would your inputs be for them? These days, there's lots and lots of courses specifically on bioengineering, biotechnology, synthetic biology. The field has kind of exploded. I don't think there were that much available when I was an undergrad or when I was even looking for my master's. And there's quite a few, um, there's definitely certain areas which have much more, many more opportunities in this specific field. Yeah, so these would be, so there's quite a lot around London uh, in the UK. There's in Sweden, Copenhagen, also Germany has quite a few courses. And then there's the US, of course, all of the Bay Area around Boston. There's a lot of very exciting companies and undergraduate and graduate programs that focus kind of entirely on engineering biology to create uh, solutions for the future. 
Yeah, so there's a whole range of things you can study. You can study basic biology. You can study completely applied, only bioengineering. And all of these things are kind of building up in the same direction that we will understand the living world better and better. And we will also understand how to apply it for what we need in a way that is quite, that lets us live in harmony with the rest of our planet. So I think it's a great time to be studying this. I'm obviously biased, but I also think in, in many other fields, people are beginning to realize that uh, learning from the living world might be very useful. And this ranges from you know material science, construction, architecture, to even computational algorithms that learn, that mimic biological networks to teach things how to discriminate between you know different subgroups. So there's a lot of kind of machine learning and neural nets. They're actually, they're mimicking structures that are already present in biology and how living organisms learn. So I think the, the awareness of what is out there in the natural world is, is kind of affecting all fields. Yep, agreed. And I think it, it's interesting that you say that because I've always uh, believed that you know, we are now transitioned to working at the intersection of things rather than being really deep into one domain. And I think this is a great perspective to have regardless of what domain we are in because you can always learn from nature. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's obviously, I'm very biased. As you can see. <laughs> that, that is my perspective. I'm sure lots of people may not agree with me. Where I work, we have, uh, we have people who did their first, let's say, training in microbiology, biochemistry, chemistry, physics, mathematics. There's, yeah, it's very hard to say what is a biology lab. It doesn't just have people who study biology. But what I do, that's definitely not the case. So, yeah. Fantastic. So as we as we wrap up this episode, uh, Simran, how, how did, just wanted to ask you how it felt to be on the podcast. And you know, thank you so much for taking time. Yeah, thank you a lot. I mean, I wanted to do it because obviously I'm very excited, inspired by, uh, you know, by all these new developments in the biotech area. But to be honest, I was very nervous. I I was also feeling a bit overwhelmed because I know some of the people who've been on your podcast and they're really exceptional and have done amazing things. And I'm just, you know, one of thousands of PhD students working on this. But yeah, I hope people enjoy learning about all the possibilities that are out there and what they could do. And maybe I'll see some of the people listening to you sometime in the future working on biochemistry or bioengineering or something. I'm sure that is going to happen and I hope you will also receive a couple of emails from the people who are tuning in with a lot of questions the way I had. Yeah, sure, no problem. <laughs> Happy to talk about this. Fantastic. Thanks, Edmund. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, no problem. Thanks for tuning into the show. We appreciate you taking the time out for this. If you like what you heard, please share this with a few friends and leave a review rating on your favorite podcaster. This will help more people learn about the podcast. Until next time, this is Krithika from the Passion People podcast wishing you a wonderful week ahead. Stay passionate. Cheers.